0: So Money Episode 1041, The Future of College with NYU professor and Pivot co-host Scott Galloway.
1: You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru Farnoosh Tarabi Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money.
0: A very big shoe is about to drop, according to my next guest, and it is the transformation of college education. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. You know, we've been talking about the impact of COVID-19 on all sorts of areas of life you know real estate the economy today i'm really interested in learning more about what will this do to the experience of college and the cost of college. Our guest today is Scott Galloway. He is an NYU Stern professor. He's the founder of several companies, a multi-podcaster. He's got an incredible podcast called Pivot, produced by Recode and Vox Media, uh, co-hosted with Kara Swisher, who's also a guest on this show. Go back and listen to her. She's of course the well-known, well-respected tech journalist. Scott is also a New York Times bestselling author. He is a Ted talker, writer, board member on major companies, So he has a lot of insights. And if you know Scott, he's a big forecaster. He likes to predict the future. And so we talk about the future of college as well as the fate of millennials. There are some opinions out there that suggest millennials are doomed, right? They've experienced now two major recessions at pivotal points in their lives. Will they ever be able to accumulate wealth? Will they ever be able to get ahead financially and professionally? All these questions answer with my brilliant guest, Scott Galloway. Here we go. Scott Galloway, welcome to So Money.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Fun fact, Scott, your podcast pivot with co-host Kara Swisher and this podcast, both nominated for Webby's this year in the business category. Congratulations, my friend.
1: We will destroy you.
0: (laughs) Two men enter, one man leave. (laughs) We'll see about that. We'll see about that. But
1: truly honored to be... Other than than talent and good looks, you have nothing
0: on me. (laughs) Nothing. Well, your show is pretty outstanding. You co-host this with Kara Swisher, who's been on this podcast. I'm a big fan of Kara. You two like to make a lot of business predictions on the show. So I wanted to ask you, firstly, what is your prediction uh, regarding where commerce is going to land post-pandemic. Is it just going to be Amazon and Ruth's Chris Steakhouse standing, or what are we facing in the next year?
1: Wow, that's the first time I've heard Amazon and Ruth's Chris <laughs> same sentence. Um Look, <clears throat> this is uh, COVID-19. There's a great saying that as we age, we become more like ourselves. And I think that this pandemic is making business more like itself and that it is it is less of a change agent than it is an accelerator. And that is the trends are that different. I've spent a bunch of time presenting to boards and, and management teams and VCs about the kind of post-corona business world. And I don't think anything changes. I just think it happens faster. So the stronger are getting stronger. This is sort of in the this the PPP and these rescue acts are really the sort of amazon and walmart shareholder acts because they couldn't have dreamt up a scenario where you put trillions of dollars of stimulus in the hands of consumers and then just to create the rum floater chaser on top of your mai tai i know let's mandate that 98 percent of their competition is closed so it's it it's just extraordinary uh the the benefit that amazon and walmart Shareholders are recognizing through this pandemic, and your you know, restoration hardware, Sephora—they come back stronger than ever. But department stores, especially retail apparel—you know—they're—they're they're basically the walking dead at this point. And that is, they'll try and do triage, they'll try and figure out a way to survive. But it's—it's uh, going to be ugly. I think you know, you saw Simon Malls is reopening today. They will—they will survive. It'll probably be reconstituted or reinvented just because they have such amazing. Such amazing um, real estate, but we're we're just going to see an acceleration between the winners and losers, and uh, greater income inequality, greater concentration of power. So it's going to it's going to be interesting. It's it's not going to be different. It's going to be more of the same to a unhealthy extent.
0: Whereas in the last recession, we saw a lot of innovation. Companies like. The Ubers and the Airbnbs and the Warby Parkers, do you think that there's going to be a repeat of that to some extent where, yes, I totally agree, there's going to be an acceleration, more migration to the internet, e-commerce is going to grow much faster, more um, more imminently, but at the same time, are there opportunities for new industries to pop up?
1: So there's always going to be dislocation and opportunities. If you think about grocery Largest consumer market in the world is arguably U.S. grocery at about three quarters of a trillion dollars, and we're going to go from two percent online to ten percent online. So you're going to have about a sixty billion dollars shift in business to a different channel, and that in its in in and among, among itself will create a ton of opportunities for services companies, consultants, technologies that help small, medium, and large size retailers transition to selling cabbage and kale and Nespresso pods online, even if they're not Amazon. So, yeah, there's going to be a lot of opportunity for niche offerings. You know, sales of masks and Purell are going to skyrocket. Online education is going to go up, but the retail will get, you know, last year, I think we saw 9,500 store closures. This year, we're likely going to see 15 to 25,000. Another 10,000 are technically closed, but don't know it yet, and we'll close in 21 or 22. Yeah, there's opportunities, but I'm going to be blunt. I'm not here with a message of hope. I think Mm -hmm. that we're you know, people act as if and this is our superpower as a country, we're optimists and people are acting as if the pandemic was historic and that normal was the market pre pandemic. And I think if you look at economic history, there's been more pandemics than there have been 11 year market expansion bull markets. So (laughs) To think that we're going to go back to the anomaly that was an 11-year unfettered run of of extraordinary returns, I think that's more unlikely than we get to a new normal that is just more muted, less consumer confidence, less spending. Uh, So I I think companies need to get to their fighting weight and plan for a new normal. Will there be really well-publicized examples of companies that emerge stronger, of new companies? Absolutely. But taken as a whole – I, I think our economy is about to get kicked in the nuts. So,
0: There's also the same prediction for millennials. Many of your students at NYU, past and present, there's predictions now that they're going to be, if, if there was any doubt that millennials were set up for failure, uh, there's now articles and you know a lot of predictions about how they have now experienced a double financial whammy and that they will absolutely never reach financial career success, much like their parents did. And so I wanted to touch on that a bit, because a lot of our audience is in that cohort. How is this going to play out for them? Let's, is there any hope?
1: Well, we purposefully orchestrated through the officials we elect and our monetary policy and our fiscal policy and what we charge for tuition that we have affected um, what is the largest transfer of wealth in the history of mankind. And that is everything we do is all about flattening the curve for people who are already rich it's about taking, I'm somewhere between a Gen X and a baby boomer, it's about making sure I stay rich, even if it means uh, saddling future generations with extraordinary amounts of debt in the form of, of sugar high stimulus. It means that when I got out of business school, my ratio of salary to tuition uh, was, uh, Haas cost me $5,000 in total tuition, I was offered a job for 100K out of business school, so that's 20 to one. Now the tuition is 140 grand or 120 grand, average salary is 140. So now, so it's gone from kind of, call it 20 to one to one and a half to one. My first house in San Francisco was $280,000, salary of 100,000, that's 2.8, average house is 1.4 million, again, tuition 140. So the ratio of housing to salary for an information age, highly educated workers gone from, what is that 2.8 to one to buy a house to 10 to one. So some of this is market, but some of it is when we allow, when we create tax-free endowments, when we let, when people such as myself become drunk on luxury and don't expand freshman seats at universities faster than population so we can continue to increase our compensation while decreasing our accountability or our confidence in a construct called tenure, when we artificially deflate interest rates such that people who already have assets, specifically older rich people, can maintain their wealth. You know, a lot of companies we're saving right now, they're meant to go out of business. The reason I'm economically secure right now is I got to buy Netflix stock at 12 bucks a share in 2009 after the carnage. And it seems as if we have decided, okay, the ultimate, the, the credit card, the work of previous generations, the world's greatest democracy, the world's most robust economy is here for one reason, and that's to keep old people rich. And so this is just a continuing the gestalt approach decision we have all made that the only thing we have to focus on is keeping nana and pop-up rich and social security a trillion dollar transfer of wealth two-thirds of it isn't about keeping out of po- people out of poverty it's about getting them an upgrade from princess cruises to crystal cruises such that young people just don't have nearly they don't have a fraction of the opportunities and economic upside that my generation have had so let's just call it what it is we've decided okay People who are already rich want to flatten the curves for them. Look at these rescue packages. It's going to come out that PPP was nothing but a giveaway to people who are already rich. The so wealthiest people in America are small business owners. The the absolute graft taking place, whether it's uh, private schools in Santa Monica, California, getting PPP loans, whether it's Axios backed by billionaires taking PPP loans whether it's Shake Shack, $1.2 billion in market cap. And the only reason they're giving the money back is they got caught. Well, there are hundreds of thousands of businesses that have absolutely no business applying for government assistance. They were all rugged capitalists on the way up, and now on the way down, they become socialists. And there's a word for that cronyism. But young people, I mean, in a word, the way to describe our government, our society's treatment of young people, the way to describe it, very simply put, in an academic term, is they are fucked. And we have made that decision consistently with our monetary and fiscal policy.
0: You say that the only financial CPR that saves the economy long term is not the PPP. It's not the trillion dollar stimulus. It's protecting people. In a capitalist society, how do we prioritize that? I agree with you, but I don't see how that is going to be a convincing strategy.
1: Well, like there's there's an argument that Any sort of bailout just creates moral hazard. We bailed out Lockheed and Martin Marietta, or Lockheed back in the 70s, gave them a quarter of a billion dollars to stay in business, which taught the entire industrial military complex, even if you you have cost overruns, don't worry, we need you to make our submarines and our tanks, we'll keep you in business. So there hasn't been a lot of, you know, cost overruns are the norm now, if you're building tanks. Then we bailed out Chrysler, which probably delayed a movement to smaller cars, less pollution, such that they could go bankrupt again 20 years later. And it didn't force Ford and GM to have a sober conversation with their unions or getting their cost structure down, which has made all of them weaker. And then there's long-term capital management. The brightest guys in the room take $5 billion in equity, lever it up, 30 to $1, $150 billion, almost take down the global economy. Let's bail them out. None of them go to jail. So what do you do? You have a bunch of banks. So like what? Why wouldn't we lever up and have champagne and cocaine? Because if it works, and it does work for a long time, we make a shit ton of money. And if it doesn't work, we get bailed out. And boom, here we are, 2009, another bailout. So all we're doing now is taking a bunch of small businesses that used to be the wolves of the global economy, and we're turning them into bitch poodles waiting for the government to come home and feed them. A lot of these businesses should go out of business. Now, some of them, and there's a cartoon of a single mom who owns a cupcake bakery who just needs a helping hand to get through the crisis, fine. Find those people. Low interest loans, zero interest loans, maybe even grants. We're going to find out that two thirds of these businesses did not need the money. We we're just putting the money in the pockets of rich CEOs and the investors. So how do we change that? With six hundred billion dollars PPP, take the lowest. They take the lower medium of households. I mean, this is shameful. We have found out that this economy, the wealthiest nation in the world, has put half our population in a position where they are vulnerable, where they can't survive. 30 60 much less 90 days without a paycheck that is shameful that we've decided okay wealthiest country in the world half the people here are just incredibly vulnerable we're 350 million serfs serving 3 million lords and if you're the bottom half we've pretty much just turned our back on you and we'll call you essential but that basically means we're going to pay you like shit and make you work 60 hours a week subject yourself to danger and live in poverty that's what we mean when we call people essential what needs to happen is you protect people. Small businesses aren't going to go out of business, at least the ones that deserve to be in business, because you are demanding that they because they don't have the ability to hold on to employees. The reason America hires faster than a country in the world is because we let people or we used to let them fire faster. And the reason these companies, the, the, the thing we could do to save small business is to restore demand, not make these artificial you know, these stupid short-term decisions where we give them a handout and then they lay off people just six months later. You take that $600 billion, you take the lower medium of household income, that's 105 million houses, so call it roughly 50 million households. You give them each $12,000. That's the same cost. You put $12,000 tax-free in the hands of the lower median of households. And the sad truth about lower and middle income people is you give them a hundred bucks, they spend 110. You give a rich person a hundred bucks, they spend 10 and they put the other 90 and Facebook, Amazon and Salesforce stock, which takes those stock prices up, which is great for shareholders who are shareholders, rich people in the spiral and the wheel spins. The way to save this economy or the way to flatten the curve, if you will, would be to give our neediest, our most vulnerable, put cash in their pockets. They would then support small business. And quite frankly, a lot of small businesses that aren't in fighting shape for this new world economy I know a guy who has five people working for him and all they do is help rich people pick out interesting colors for their cars. He's a color consultant. That shit should go away. It probably doesn't need to be around. Instead, he got a $400,000 PPP check. Good for him. So, but this is, that's not helping the economy. That's just keeping a guy who's making a half a million dollars a year, servicing rich people in business for a little bit longer and putting money in his pocket. So you protect people. You don't protect jobs. I, I realize I'm blathering on here, but I'll wrap up by saying I'm on a lot, I serve on a lot of boards of directors. We always have this conversation: on do we lay off people, do we not? And my viewpoint is you can't protect jobs. You would rather lay off people sooner rather than later, and to be especially generous with regard to severance, so that human capital can find a different job, a better place for their skills. I mean, someone working at Macy's right now or J.C. are you doing them a favor by keeping them employed at a zombie company? We I mean, give them money. Give them money. And so
0: they can and and do something else. And the handwriting's on the wall. And speaking of things that are going away, Scott, college, we're already seeing a lot of students deferring freshman year. I mean, because after all, the whole idea of going to college is going to college. And if you can't do that, if you don't have NY with the NYU, (laughs) what are you paying $100,000 a year for? How do you think coronavirus is going to accelerate the change on the college campus. You know, you wrote on your site that COVID-19 could be to education in the U.S. what SARS was to e-commerce in Asia. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah. So this might be the spark that actually ignites the disruption that we've been thinking. I've been I've been saying it's going to happen for 10 years and I've been wrong, but I think it's finally here. And, and Larry Summers has this great saying where he says it's surprising how long things can take and then shocking how fast they can happen. We're about to enter the shocking phase in graduate education, because I've got, uh, I'm, I have 170 kids registered for brand strategy in the fall. And they show up September 1, and they each pay 7,000 bucks. So what is that? That's 190. That's $1.2 million, mostly taken on in debt, to listen to me rant on in front of a PowerPoint presentation for 2 hours and 40 minutes, 12 times. So $100,000 per class. I'm good at what I do, maybe even great. I'm not worth $100,000 a night for a bunch of students who put off getting married, starting businesses, student debt, household formation, such that we can continue to support an extraordinary level of incompetence referred to as as American academic faculties. They've had it. We have reached, we have starched out all the surplus margin. We have priced it to the point where it's almost not even worth it anymore. We're at kind of the indifference point. It's still... It's still an incredible asset, the certification you get from a university, but it's largely going to become the playground of rich people now because no one can afford this, or fewer people can afford this. We've been praying on the hopes and dreams of the middle class, and then when we try and charge them 140 grand for a bunch of shitty Zoom classes, that's going to be all they need to say, "Sorry, we're not. We're not enrolling our kid at Vanderbilt this fall." Now, what happens when? What we're what we're sort of experiencing is what I call the great dispersion, and that is we're realizing that delivery of healthcare and education isn't geographically dependent as we thought, and that is if I don't if I don't need to be in the room and they don't need to be in the room to give them some reasonable facsimile of my class, it's not worth seven thousand, but maybe it's worth one, two, maybe even three thousand, because at the end of the day, what we're doing is certifying them, not educating them. Okay, that works. And then how does NYU? Hold on to those gross margin dollars so we can continue to overpay ourselves. We'll be able to do that by expanding enrollments. And we'll be able to expand enrollments because we turn away 80% of our applicants and because we'll have much greater capacity given that we won't our geographic facilities won't be nearly as taxed because 30, 60, 80% of our courses will be taught online. So there'll be a rush a dramatic expansion enrollment among the top schools who all want to hold on to those gross margin dollars and can make up those gross margin dollars despite a much lower cost with greater enrollments. This will put massive pressure on tier two schools. You know, in the short run, Columbia and NYU dip in revenue, but in three years, their revenue is probably back to where it was maybe more. Fordham, Loyola, Pace. Oh my gosh, are they going to get hit in the gut? Because we have this cartel in education where everybody charges the same amount, and then they use admissions and geography to justify that. So yeah, your kid paying $140,000 to get his MBA at MIT—that's worth it. Is it worth it to get his to pay that kind of money to go to the University of San Diego or whatever it might be? Absolutely not, especially when he or she is probably going to have opportunity to go to a better school now because these enrollments are going to have to expand to justify for the loss in average order value. So I think we're I think we're about to have the great disruption. In the short term, we're going to see the mother of all gap years. I'm getting. It feels like five emails a day, so it's probably two to three from parents asking me, "Here's where my kid got into school. This is how much it's going to cost. Should he or she take a gap year?" And what I'm telling is, hundred percent. I mean, we'll figure this out. We'll get better at it. But is people really going to pay sixty-eight thousand? Kara Swisher's son has gone into some great schools, and she's wondering, do I really want to pay sixty grand, maybe eighty or ninety grand by the time I pay room and board, so my kid can take a bunch of Zoom classes? So look, this is. Overdue, we have stuck our chin out further than almost any industry with the exception of healthcare. and these fists of stone called covid nineteen and technology are gonna are gonna are gonna meet that chin. education is absolutely on the verge of massive disruption
0: and do you think that the price will have to come down? Am I saving too much right now for college? My kids are six and three. Should I just take it easy?
1: Six and three kids yeah. I, I, first off I'm sorry I'm, that is. <laughs> During a pandemic, Thank you. I've developed a lot of empathy for those mothers that just put their kids in their minivan and drive into a lake. I get it. I totally get it now. Mm-hmm. I totally get it. You're
0: saying You're prob- things that I am scared to say out loud, but yes, go ahead. Oh my gosh,
1: uh, my house has been taken over by Iraqi insurgents called children. I am so sick of these assholes. I have had <laughs> it. Everyone talks about these hallmark <laughs> moments with your kids. Oh my god. Oh my god. They're yeah. awful. They're I never lying. How awful they are. They're just lying. Oh, my God, they're awful. Anyways, so look, yeah, you you know, you want to save that money because you probably, look. the the reality is that the luxury brands are still going to figure out a way to charge outrageous prices and it's still going to be worth it. I I think price is going to come, what's going to happen is price is going to come way down. If you buy a coach bag, you pay a third of what you pay or a third, 5% of what you pay for a Birkin bag. MIT, Oxford, Stanford, they're Birkin bags. And to date... San Francisco State and the University of Colorado at Boulder have been charging the same price for a Birkin bag. That's over. We're going to start pricing to quality because they're no longer going to have geographic monopolies. And, and the great thing, you know, the wonderful thing, the best thing that happened to I'm trying to think of a, you know, a decent university in the Bay Area, but not a great one. The best thing that happened to, you know, College of College of the, of the Redwoods or whatever it is, a pri- nice private school, is that these guys have absolutely, you know, they only let in one in 10 applicants. So then they go down to the next tier, but they don't reduce the price. So you're going to have fix, you're going to have, you're going to have what we have in every other market. And that is, you're going to have pricing that is largely dictated about the quality of the education or quality of the certification. And that is how strong a brand we have a cast society.
0: As it should be. I mean, that makes sense to me. Why aren't we doing that already? But I guess we have this um, insistence that everybody needs a college degree to get, a leg up in their careers, um, and we'll, they'll pay whatever price they have. And also, you know, this when I was a college, when I was a high school student, this was um, years ago. But my guidance counselor said, "Just take out the loans." That's what you do. My family was against it. Thank God. But this idea of borrowing to go to school has just become so normalized.
1: It's uh, it's outrageous. We've been praying yeah. on the hopes and dreams of middle class families. They thought it was a ticket to a better life. It was when you're when I was a kid. It was a ticket to a better. My mother was a. Single mother, lived and died as secretary, and raised me on that salary. And I am now, I have an extraordinary life because of the generosity and vision of California taxpayers and the regents of the University of California. That's no longer the case. It's no longer the case. Now it's middle class, a middle class white kid like me who was unremarkable would have gone into a shitty university, but we still think that that's the key to the future. So I would have taken out a ton of debt. I would have never had the opportunity to apply to grad school. I would have never had the confidence to start a business. And I'd be probably making a good living selling Subarus, and there's nothing, like, there's nothing wrong with that, but I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you. So what we have done is we have fallen out of love with the unremarkables. We smear Vaseline over the lens of, of morally bankrupt behavior, graduate education, and undergraduate education by letting in some remarkable underprivileged kids. There are more women going to college, which is a great thing. But if you aren't expanding your enrollment faster than inflation and you're sitting on a thirty seven billion dollar endowment, Harvard, you're not a pu- you're not a public service service. You're a luxury good. And we should tax the shit out of your endowment. I mean, that is just we have become drunk on luxury. We every at NYU at faculty meetings, they stand up and they brag this year. We only let in 12 percent of applicants. That's like the head of a homeless shelter bragging that they turned away. Eighty eight percent of the people who showed up last night. That's not the point. We should be, we should be educating. Um, I mean, how many of us, where did you go to school? I
0: went Aren't to in? Penn State, and then I went to Columbia for grad okay. school.
1: Both great schools. And I don't know if you're like me, but a lot of us say, I would never get in now. I would never get in. I wouldn't get in I,
0: there now. Yeah,
1: <laughs> no sure. way. No way. And here's the thing. We claim, we say that with some pride. Well, guess what? That means your kid's not getting in. I mean that your kid's not going to SC or UCLA, he or she's going to Pepperdine. Because on a risk-adjusted basis, your kid's probably the same character and intellect as you are. And a guy like me, I just wouldn't have gone to college. You know, so this is, now who gets to go? Who gets to go? It's children of wealthy people. We claim we're into diversity and we brag that 30% of our students are international. Show me an international student at a U.S. college, I'll show you the son of someone incredibly rich. We call it diversity. We could give a flying fuck about diversity. We want to let in the son of the kid who owns the biggest brewery in El Salvador because they'll pay full freight. We do let in some remarkable kids from lower income households, but the reality is 99% of us are not in the top 1%. I'm almost certain of that. And we, we, we publicize that 1% that, I mean, there's some great things. A kid from the inner city in LA will find Harvard and Harvard will find her. That is great. But the the good, the, the someone who's just good, there's never been a better time in our economy to be remarkable. There's never been a worse time to be unremarkable. And I think the test of our society isn't just a bunch of hallmark stories about people who make it out. You know, there will be the Jay-Zs, there will be the Mark Zuckerbergs. Assume you are not that person. Assume your daughter is not that person and assume that your kid like you is probably good, not great, trying to figure it out, doesn't have it all figured out, and would like the opportunity to have a remarkable future vis-a-vis education. And we've decided that's no longer the case. So I don't think it could happen to a nicer group of people. I work with what I believe is one of the finest faculties in the world. A third of them should be put on an ice flow, and that's being generous This is the least competitive environment in the world. And at some point, someone's going to make the connection between incompetence and overcompensation. We have social services for poor people called food stamps and unemployment. We have social service for the overeducated called tenure. That absolutely needs to be obliterated. We need to expand enrollments. We need to start taxing endowments of universities that have lost the script and see themselves as luxury brands, not as public servants. And we need to massively double and triple the number of freshman seats at the top 100 schools, which will put huge economic pressure and transfer some of that social good back to middle class families.
0: And certainly college is part of the equation for, you know, quote unquote success. And you also wrote that what young people need to Uh, acquire right now is not just a college degree, but skills, empathy, grit, not things you necessarily learn in a classroom. And so I've been getting this question from a lot of younger listeners who are perhaps, you know, taking a year off or they've, they've, they started a job and then they've been furloughed and they don't know what to do. How do they pivot? What kind of skills do you see being the most important? Again, addressing the younger generation who wants to not become a statistic
1: it's a situational thing and i and i try to be more thoughtful about the 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 advice i give because sometimes people run with it and they assume because i'm on a credible program like this i know what i'm talking about so let's talk let's break it down but if you're talking about an industry i think technology disrupting education and healthcare are going to be enormously one are going to be great industries to go into generally speaking an ability to build stuff whether it's building an app Industrial design, understanding the the intersection between product product managers that understand technology. That's a great skill set. STEM, whether it's bio. I mean, we're seeing you know biotech about to become really hot again. Uh, you know, supply chain operations. These things are coming back in vogue. My domain, marketing and brand building. I think the sun has passed midday on that. I think Don Draper has been drawn and quartered. I think the majority of marketing departments at top business schools are training kids to graduate go to. Craft Heinz, and then be laid off in three years. I think the skills we're teaching them are, you know, we might as well be giving them a buggy whip. So there's there's opportunity in terms of education. the The, the challenge we have is not to figure out a different route for kids other than college. I think the challenge is to bring down the cost, because I still do think college is an outstanding plan A and even plan B for people. And I think of graduate school as plan B. Most people in business school are the elite and aimless and that is they're good at what they do, they're hardworking, they're smart, they're pe- excuse me, they're pedigree. They don't know what they want to do. So while they figure it out, they go get certified in business school. That's what, that's my, you know, that was my situation. I was an investment banker and just knew I didn't want to do that anymore. The gap year is a fantastic idea for almost anyone graduating from high school, and for a couple of reasons. One, parents don't want to admit this, but a combination of social media and helicopter parenting has resulted in a generation of fragile 18-year-olds, especially among boys who aren't men, they're boys, Uh, some girls who are very prone to depression and self-harm. Teenage suicide is up 30%, for boys somewhere between 60 and 80%. For girls. And the reality is a lot of people are dumping their kids at universities before they're ready for it. And the dirty secret of college campus life now is administrators have unwittingly become mental health counselors and no longer educators. These kids are just too young and too fragile, uh, many of them, to be away from home in an intense and competitive environment. And I think a gap year is a great idea. There are some myths about gap years that everyone thinks, well, if he doesn't go, if he or she doesn't go right to college, she'll end up as a roadie for Justin Bieber and addicted to meth and never get, start tracking again. And the reality is, so the the statistics are 90% of people who take a gap year go back to college, they return to college and they have a higher matriculation rate or graduation rate with better grades. So your child's chances of graduating are greater if he or she takes a gap year. In addition, you know, one of my ideas was to propose was to propose a Corona Corps, and that is a group of kids who would be tracers and enter into some sort of public service. And that might be, I almost thought about going uh, to Annapolis um, uh, uh, when I was coming out of college, mostly because my dad wouldn't want to pay for my college. But there is an opportunity, I think, to enlist a bunch of 18-year-olds who aren't ready for college in the agency and service of others. And I look at as role models, um, the Peace Corps or a, a mission for Latter-day Saints. But serving something in the agency of others, bigger than yourself, working your ass off, uh, understanding discipline, understanding empathy, coming in contact with people you don't know, quite frankly, selling a lot. You want to I will always hire Mormon missionaries in, in sales. I mean, banging on doors of people who just don't want to hear from you is a great training at the age of 18. They're
0: impressive. They speak multiple languages.
1: And they're nice and they can deal with rejection. My 18-year-olds don't want to like give the valet his ticket. So, yeah, I'm my, sorry. My, my kids are, you know, they're so shy. Anyways, but another issue. Uh, <laughs> another the, show. The, the also, we need desperately in our nation a generation of people who have a shared experience that creates a level of camaraderie and cooperation that existed in the 50s and 60s where we passed incredible legislation because m- many or most of our leaders had served with each other in uniform. And so they put America before their political parties. That's no longer the case. So we need a shared, we need to generate, we need to mature a generation of leaders that have more empathy, a greater sense of cooperation, a greater sense of the American identity as opposed to their political party identity. And I'd like to think there's an opportunity to create what I'm loosely referring to as a Corona Corps for gap year. and then again, I'm easy to spend other people's money, pay them 30,000 a year, they do two years in this thing, based on their income level, that that gives them tuition remission of 25 to 100%. We're talking about a total, you have a half a million tracers, which I think is the key to reducing the apex of the relapse, which will be key to our economy, in my opinion, moving forward. That costs about $50 billion. And think of it as a 2% insurance policy premium on a $2.5 trillion stimulus to make sure we don't have to come up with another $2.5 trillion in two years if this shit relapses. So I'm very into this notion of developing kind of this super, this army of super soldiers who are largely, largely immune from this, this uh, pandemic, who can serve uh, greatness in the agency of others and develop a new generation of leaders. And here's just my, my latest, my latest rant.
0: Yeah, I read it. That that was was awesome. no, it was awesome. No, it was really well, good. I was going to bring it up, but you did it for me. Um, yeah, this uh, Corona Corps, fascinating and. I mean, in terms of adopting that, how does that, how does something like that get off the ground?
1: So I've been contacted by several elected representatives, both Senate offices and, and offices of representatives. I've been contacted by the governor of New York's office. So we'll see. I mean, I'm excited about it, AmeriCorps, AmeriCorps reached out and said, hey, that's us, what are you doing get, to help mm-hmm. us get our attention and funding. So there is, there are people out there, you know, who I've heard most from his parents, Parents are parents acknowledge that, you know, when I was 17, when I went to UCLA, I just wasn't ready. And I ended up just drinking a lot, smoking a lot of pot and watching Planet of the Apes over and over again and barely graduated. And by the way, it was awesome. All of that was Tuition
0: dollars, hard at work. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But even then, like for $450 a quarter, it's like, okay, go go let them make, you know, house bongs out of household items and watch Planet of the Apes. That's okay, But can parents really tolerate that at 68K a year? So, look, things are changing, and I, I think we have to adopt new institutions, but it all comes back to one thing, and that is we have to get off this this, this train and this massively unhealthy gestalt that we've adopted that a, a, a virus that wipes out the human race would be bad, but the NASDAQ going down would be worse because then – the wealthiest generation in history, baby boomers, not, might not be as rich. If these businesses go out of business, there will be more opportunity for younger people. If these stocks go down. Who knows? Maybe a 28-year-old coming into his or her prime earning years might be able to buy an apartment in Brooklyn at $800 bucks a square foot instead of $1,500. Maybe they get to buy Amazon at 50 times earnings versus 500 Shedding skin, failure, declines in markets are healthy. And there are losers. But you know there are certain there are certain seeds that only germinate when in a fire, and we've just decided everything, including borrowing against our future generations' prosperity. Money is just a transfer of work and time. So when we issue trillions of dollars of debt to keep rich people rich, all we're doing is saying, "All right, your kids and grandkids aren't going to get to spend as much time with their loved ones, so you can be on carnival fucking cruises all the time." I mean. This has gotten so out of control, whether it's Social Security, whether it's mortgage tax deduction, whether it's capital gains tax cut, whether it's these rescue packages, it all reverses engineers the same goddamn thing. How do we keep the rich baby boomers in this country rich? Full stop. That's all it's about.
0: Well, this is a. An incredible conversation. I know you have continue. You are continuing this dialogue on your podcast, Pivot. I want everyone to check you out there with Kara Swisher. You have a new podcast too, right? With Vice Media.
1: Yeah. Oh no. So there's no, there's literally n- no escaping me. I have a second <laughs> You're podcast. You're I, I literally, I'm a bi- I am the virus. Uh, (laughs) There's Prop G. We launched seven weeks ago. Most successful launch in the history of Westwood One Radio Network, uh, the Prop G show. And then I'm uh, previewing or premiering on May 7th. I have no mercy, no malice on Vice Television because linear ad supported television. That's the future for news. (laughs) Yeah, right. That's the future. (laughs) Or as I like to call my TV show, when Netflix doesn't call you back.
0: Yeah. May 7th.
1: When May seventh, May no mercy, no malice on Vice Television. Try and find it. Just as a Nike test, try and find it on try your it.
0: table. Try, we, 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 yeah. Try and find it. <laughs> good try luck with that, it. Scott. Thank you so much for joining us, and uh, be well. Thanks,
1: thanks for news. Thanks for your. Thanks for your good work and congrats on all your success.
0: To experience more of Scott Galloway, check out his podcast, Pivot, with Kara Swisher. His latest book is called The Algebra of Happiness, debuted on the New York Times and Apple Bestseller Lists. And you can follow him on Twitter at Galloway. All this info and the links are on somoneypodcast.com. And remember, if you'd like to submit a question for our Friday episodes of Ask Farnoosh, just click on Ask Farnoosh while you're on the website or head over to Instagram and follow me there at Farnoosh Tarabi, send me a direct message. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. I hope your day is so money.